From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. When the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last month on a 5-4 to four vote, it upended the constitutional right to abortion that had been in place in this country for nearly 50 years. The decision does not ban abortions across the nation. It gives states the authority to decide how and when abortion should be regulated. According to the Guttmacher Institute, 26 states are certain or likely to ban or restrict access to abortion. 13 of those states, including nearby Idaho, have trigger laws designed to ban abortion within 30 days of the ruling. One thing is certain, the Supreme Court's ruling sent the country into uncharted territory on multiple fronts, political, legal, medical, and social. In this episode of Straight Talk, we look at what it means for Oregon and Washington and the possible impacts to women's health, including access to fertility treatment, and what other decisions we might see from the nation's highest court. Joining me for this discussion, Professor Allison Gash, an associate professor of political science at the University of Oregon. She's an academic expert on gender, race, sexuality, same-sex marriage, constitutional rights, and public policy. Also joining us from OHSU, Dr. Paula Amato. She is a reproductive endocrinologist and specializes in caring for patients with infertility. And rounding out our panel, Grayson Dempsey, a spokesperson for the Lilith Clinic, which opened in March of 2021. It's Oregon's only independent abortion clinic. Welcome everyone to Straight Talk. It's so nice to have you here for this important discussion. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. Yeah. Let, let's go down the table and let's hear your reaction. What was your initial reaction when you heard the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade? We'll start with Professor Gash. Yeah, um, you know, I, I knew it was happening. I think a lot of us who've been tracking the case uh, understood what was going to be coming out of the court, but um, still I felt this sort of visceral, physical uh, sickness come over me, um, in part because Roe v. Wade is really the glue that ties together a whole bunch of civil rights, a whole bunch of fundamental rights around privacy, particularly those protecting vulnerable communities. Uh, and so it's just a, a panic and a fear about what comes next. And Dr. Paula Amato. Likewise, I don't think I was surprised because we were all expecting it, but it was still very shocking. It just felt like such a setback for reproductive health and women's rights. And Grayson Dempsey. I would echo everything that everybody else has said. One of the things that I've pointed out is that it was um, because we're on the West Coast, um, it was at 7 a.m. and I felt like my phone just jumped off of my nightstands um, and I was in shock, I think, to echo that we expected it. Um, it was it, it was devastating. I immediately thought of my, it was on a Friday, I immediately thought of my colleagues across the nation um, holding procedure days on that day where they actually had to stop what they were doing in that moment, which was devastating to think about. And then um, the part I'll never forget is having to wake my daughters up and share the news with them, which was something that I wish I had never had to do. Yeah. From your perspective, what is the most significant impact of this decision? We'll start with you, Grayson. From a clinic perspective, the most significant impact is that we have thrown our nation into chaos when it comes to understanding this now patchwork of laws. Um, I think that the reality that we are in real time trying to understand not only what this means for patients seeking abortion care, but for the providers who are providing that care. Um, and I, it's, it's chaotic and what I keep saying is that chaos is the intention. Um, I keep thinking about places like Louisiana and Texas where they have been able to block the law and then open their clinics again and and while it is great that we can serve as many patients as we can, I know that it must feel 
chaotic for those clinics and those patients mm -hmm. to have no idea when they wake up tomorrow what their rights must what their rights may be. And Dr. Amato, from your perspective, what's the most significant impact? I think it's going to exacerbate the disparities that already exist. I think this these laws are going to disproportionately affect lower income women and people of color. And I think we're going to see an increase in morbidity and mortality associated with pregnancy. And frankly, I think it's going to impede gender equality. And we'll, we'll talk more about that too. Um, Allison, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, in addition to the obvious um, barriers to abortion access, um, we're also going to see, I think, a chilling effect on um, vulnerable communities wanting to access health care now that health care providers have been sort of implicated as um, increased spaces of surveillance for low-income women in particular and women of color. Uh, and then I'm also very, very worried uh, on top of um, women wanting to have abortions, um, those women who have miscarriages, those women who are, um, you know, unfortunately experience stillbirth, are they going to be then in some way criminalized? Because it's sometimes hard to tell the difference between um, intention or, or knowledge of um, uh, uh, um, some sort of um, harm to the fetus mm -hmm. and, you know, what is in we're fact intentional abortion. we're already seeing some, yeah. some things happen like that, yeah, some prosecutions, we are, right? We are, right. Mm -hmm. And even, even with Roe, we saw those sorts of prosecutions. So without Roe, I can only imagine what that's going to look like. In Oregon and Washington, we have a lot of protections for abortion rights. Does this really affect people here? What do you think, Grayson? I think it absolutely affects us here. I mean, I think we are a united country where human rights shouldn't be um, based on your zip code and where you live. Um, but I also think that for the states like Oregon, where abortion still will remain legal and accessible, um, we are expecting a surge in patients. We know that from the Guttmacher Institute that we are anticipating um, about a 234% surge in patients. And to see what it means for half of the country to be absorbing care for the other half of the country, and again, those patients who have the means, have the resources, and actually can travel, which is a huge hurdle to, to get over. Um, we are, we're trying to serve those patients as well as the people of Oregon, and we, um, we have a limited, you know, we have limited capacity right now when it comes to um, procedure rooms, to physicians, to clinicians who provide care. So um, all of us should be worried, not only that it's gonna affect people here for the short term, but that um, we need to remember that our laws aren't um, etched in stone, and we need to be vi ever vigilant. Yeah. And something people may not have thought about is how this could impact prenatal care and fertility treatments. Dr. Motto, talk a little bit about that, how it could affect genetic testing, uh, ultrasound, frozen embryos. Yeah, de depending on how the, you know, what the language is in the actual laws, it could sometimes either intentionally or unintentionally impact infertility treatment, which is what I do. So some of the laws, for example, refer to life beginning at the time of fertilization. And that could be interpreted as including an embryo in the petri dish or in the freezer. So what are the implications for infertility patients and providers? We routinely do genetic testing on embryos, as you said. Embryos are discarded. Um, we make typically as many embryos as we can, but if now these embryos have some sort of legal status, is it gonna change our practice so that we're not quite creating as many embryos? And is that gonna cost patients more money? Are they gonna to have to do more IVF cycles? Is that gonna increase the barriers to access even further?
And you're nodding your head a lot because mm -hmm. there are some states that are already considering laws that would give personhood mm -hmm. to embryos. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, there's an actual uh, case going on right now in Arizona dealing with a fetal personhood law that's sort of wrapped up in their um, ban on abortion. That's on hold right now as the federal courts try to figure out um, wh where the lines are, if there are any lines. Um, but there's a number of states that are similarly passing those laws. So again, it's, a, it's just a matter of what comes next as Roe unravels. And Paula, are you getting a lot of calls from elsewhere about people who might want to transfer frozen embryos to OHSU? We are, we are. Lots of patients in those states that have trigger laws are concerned about what's going to happen to their embryos. So they're making calls to clinics in, in states like Oregon. Should we transfer our embryos right now? The guidance is, you know, just sit tight. Let's examine the laws and see what they actually say. Because there's risk to transferring embryos as well could lose embryos in transit, it costs money to ship them, so, but there definitely, there's a lot of anxiety both on the side of the patient and providers as well. And from uh, an abortion care standpoint, Grayson, are you seeing very many people come from out of state? We are, we, even prior to the Dobbs decision, we, about 25% of our patients were from out of state. We had certainly seen an increase in patients from Texas since uh, SB8 passed in, or went into effect in September. Um, and the patients who get to us, by the time they arrive here, you can only imagine what it feels like to have had to cross, you know, travel hundreds or thousands of miles crossing state lines mm -hmm. to access what, is, what should be considered very basic health care. Um, and the, I think, stress of that, I think we are seeing patients now, we had a patient who was from Texas and had made an appointment in a neighboring state and was in that clinic in the waiting room on the day the Dobbs decision came down and found out that they wouldn't be able to get their appointment that day because the clinic had to cease operations. Um, they, were, it was, they were in the southeastern United States, called around the um, east coast and clinics were backed up about four to six weeks for appointments oh and then traveled all the way to Oregon because this was where they were able to get the soonest appointment time. And I just can't imagine the burden that that places on people. I know, um, you know, it, I've, I've never had to travel um, a great distance like that for healthcare. And so by the time people get to us, they're, they're grateful, but they're exhausted, understandably. And you expect that number, as you said, to, to go up Absolutely. astronomically. Absolutely. What about these people that, that do travel from, say, Texas to Oregon? Um, Allison, could they face prosecution? Yeah, so one of the, um, you know, interesting strategies that uh, states like Texas and other states are starting to look at are these sort of um, what are referred to as bounty hunter kinds of laws where essentially uh, the states will empower private individuals to sue other individuals for violating a particular law, so in this case abortion. So uh, in theory what could happen is if a, a woman in one state or a person in one state seeks an abortion in a different state, uh, a private citizen of that state could theoretically sue the person for nevertheless acting out to what is a criminal um, offense in their given state. And then the same would apply to the folks who are assisting her, um, that person so in that state. So individuals could be held liable. Yeah, and so this is the great unknown, is we don't really know what the courts are gonna do with these strange sort of bounty hunter laws, um, but they're definitely gonna pop up and we're, we're not really gonna know the implications of them until we start to see more litigation. And Paula, could we see a, a chilling effect with those kinds of laws on, on healthcare providers? I think so, I think providers are gonna be concerned if they're going to be held you know liable for uh, providing abortion care to patients out of state or for discarding embryos or for any number of things. What about at the Lilith Clinic? Are you concerned about uh, being held liable? 
we are currently committed to serving everybody who can get to our clinic. Um, we feel really fortunate to live in a state with such uh, great laws around abortion care and abortion access. We know that we work in partnership with our um, elected leaders who have stated their commitment to uh, making sure abortion providers are protected. Um, but we re definitely recognize the gray area that some you know, clinics find themselves in, that some providers find themselves in, and um, just find it really unfortunate that, especially I will say in emergent situations, that any provider would have to consider um, whether or not they are making themselves liable when they are in a situation where they need to be treating a patient who's in immediate need of health care. So um, it's, it's, I think that there may be a chilling effect. I, mm -hmm. I think that people are going to suffer as a result, and it's, um, it's scary to think about. And another ripple effect could be for training um, medical students who want to become OBGYNs and their future patients. Dr. Amato, talk a little bit about the training involved and how that could be restricted. Yeah, currently about half of the OBGYN residency programs are in states that have so-called trigger ban laws. So what I think we'll see is that you have a number of providers who have to travel elsewhere to get their training or if they choose not to do that or can't do that, will not be trained in these procedures, which I think people don't always realize the same procedures we use for pregnancy termination are the same surgical procedures that we use for management of miscarriage. So you don't want to be in a state where your OBGYN doesn't know to do an emergency, you know, second trimester termination or management of a miscarriage. So I think, again, we're going to see increased morbidity and mortality in some of these states, unfortunately. And I think it's going to also play into where people choose to train and live. Mm -hmm. You know, you might not want to live and practice in a state, so that's going to just exacerbate the physician shortages that already right, exist. Right, because OHSU, like places like OHSU, can only take a certain amount right. of medical students, so if there are, that, that would limit the providers there, and that could affect places like the Lilith Clinic getting providers. Mm -hmm. What we are seeing, I will say, is more and more people who want to train, wanting to travel here, and again, um, these, this is what still is left to be figured out, but I think that in, in Oregon, um, most of the providers that I know feel really committed to, to mm -hmm. training as many um, of the next generation of providers as they can, including those who are traveling from states where they're unable to get that in-house yeah. in their universities or um, training institutions. But um, we, again, I think the surge is gonna be great and we are going to have to figure out in a state like Oregon how we meet that demand. And you mentioned, Dr. Amato, uh, maternal mortality, and I wanted to share a statistic about that according to the National Institutes of Health in a 2021 study, maternal mortality rates for non-Hispanic black women are three and a half times higher than among non-Hispanic white women. So Dr. Amato, that's already high and you think that may go higher? I do, I do, because as we said earlier, I think these laws will disproportionately affect people of color and lower income women. And when people have to travel out of state, first, not everybody can, but if you have to travel, then that delays your care. And everybody knows that if you do a medical procedure later in pregnancy, that's inherently more risky. What, what advice do you have, doctor, for fertility patients? People are hearing this may be worried. Well, I, I think they need to be vigilant. We all need to be vigilant and pay attention to these laws and vote <laughs> in our elections and um, 
you know, they need to educate themselves and, and be prepared to, to take action. And Allison, you mentioned this earlier about miscarriages, mm -hmm. which um, is a, another interesting ripple effect that the number of women who had miscarriages who were prosecuted for mm -hmm. being suspected of purposely or accidentally ending a pregnancy was already on the rise. That's what right. laws are being used for that? And this is a, is this a harbinger of things to come? Yeah, so basically there are, um, there are these um, laws that criminalize any sort of harm that is perpetrated against a fetus, typically they apply to a third party, right? So, so if you think about it in the context of a crime or a car accident, those sorts of, of laws. But they've been utilized against the actual mothers, right? The actual pregnant mothers who are themselves suffering from miscarriage or stillbirth. Um, Roe allowed for these women to um, eventually have their sentences overturned, but still they would, some of them served up to two years before their sentences were overturned without Roe. <laughs> The big question is, um, will these rise? And, and I think um, most advocates will, would agree that they, they will. Well, it's time for us to take a break, but when we come back, what other rulings might we see from the Supreme Court and what are their implications? We'll continue our conversation in two minutes. Welcome back to Straight Talk, I'm Laurel Porter. We're talking about the ripple effects from the U.S. Supreme Court's decision on abortion overturning Roe v. Wade. Welcome once again to my guests, OHSU's Dr. Paula Amato, University of Oregon Assistant Professor Allison Gash, and from the Lilith Clinic in Portland, Grayson Dempsey. Once again, welcome everybody. We're going to talk about uh, President Biden taking some executive actions last week to try to preserve abortion access. It would direct federal agencies to protect FDA-approved medication for abortion, make sure contraception is available, and protect patient privacy when a woman seeks reproductive medical services and information online. And this week, the Biden administration said a federal law protecting access to emergency treatment mandates performing an abortion if a doctor deems it necessary in a medical emergency, even if that procedure isn't legal under state law. I want to talk about that a little bit, Professor Gash. Um, we just heard on Thursday that Texas is now suing over that last order. How much of a difference are President Biden's actions really going to make? You know, um, there's, there's not a whole lot that the president can do. There's there's some stuff that can happen when it's, you know, executive orders in conjunction with existing federal law. But still, you get into this fuzzy area, which is, you know, is it federal law that trumps state law or does state or do states have autonomy? But I also just want to point out that Texas is suing for the right to allow mothers to die in service of um, bans on abortion. And how do you see it that way? Um, because essentially what they're arguing is that the federal government doesn't have the right to intervene on behalf of the, the health and, and welfare of the mother when that mother's life is at risk. So talking about a medical emergency. Yeah. Grayson, what are your thoughts about that? I think the thing that we need to remember is that we can pass laws all day, but if we don't have access to providers, then those laws are meaningless. So if you're in a state where abortion has been banned and there is a mandate saying that there has to be an abortion performed to save a woman's life, if you don't have a provider there who knows how to provide that service, it's really a meaningless action. I also think that the question becomes, when do we see life as being threatened? Does somebody have to be on the brink of death for that to be a life-threatening emergency? Or does it also mean if a patient has to stop their chemotherapy because they're pregnant and can't continue with cancer treatment? So there's really a gray area, and I appreciate that there's efforts to pass these executive orders, but I think we need to remember that it is access to providers that make the difference. And as Dr. Amato said, those providers may be leaving states where they either fear that they're going to be liable or can't practice at all. 
And in Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion overturning Roe v. Wade, he raised concerns that other rights could be next, like contraception and same-sex marriage. What signals do you think, Professor Gash, that Justice Thomas was sending? I mean, he didn't send a signal. He actually literally <laughs> said states should certainly look at Lawrence versus Texas, which dealt with anti-sodomy laws. Uh, he called out specifically uh, same-sex marriage and Obergefell versus Hodges. He called out Griswold. And the thing about uh, Supreme Court cases and, and case law in general is that until there's another case that actually weighs in on whatever is the sort of next step, states can interpret those particular edicts in whatever way they want, right? So already we know that Texas has decided that they want to dust off uh, their anti-sodomy statute and, and sort of see if there's any legs to what Thomas has articulated. So a state can decide, you know what, we're going to start to follow Thomas's um, call to arms. We're going to start to infringe upon these rights just to see how far we can take it until the courts intervene. And one of those restrictions could be applied to contraception. Tell me about your concerns there, Dr. Amato. Yeah, there are particular forms of contraceptives, which I think are going to be targeted, namely the so-called morning after pill or IUDs. And that's based on people's misperception, actually, of the, the main mechanism of action. They consider those forms of contraception, what we call abortifacients, that they actually induce abortions, which is medically incorrect. So I think those uh, particular forms of contraception are at risk for, for being prohibited. And there's a certain medicine, too, from the abortion pill, right, that can be used for other conditions? Mm, yes, uh, like methotrexate and methopristone. Those types of medications are used for medical abortion, but they're also used for the management of ectopic pregnancy and miscarriage. So if, if providers are prohibited from using those medications for those reasons, I don't think people realize that they're, you know, they may not be able to be treated for their tubal pregnancy, which is a gynecologic emergency in some cases, or their miscarriage. Now, you are the vice president of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Is, is the group planning any counteractions? Yes, I think the organization is tracking these laws very closely, and they are also educating and providing guidance to patients and providers in these states, and we're prepared to deploy resources to fight these laws. And Grayson, what do you want people watching to know about access to abortion care, what should they know? I want people to know that abortion is still legal in Oregon and that we are committed to serving patients who can get to Oregon. I know that's not realistic for everybody, but um, we, along, you know, in partnership with our elected leaders, um, have doubled down time and time again on our commitment to abortion care. Um, I want people to know that they can get an appointment at the Lilith Clinic. We are still working to get people in as quickly as possible. We know that once somebody is pregnant and knows they don't want to be pregnant, that getting in as quickly as possible is important. I recognize that for a lot of our patients, there is a feeling of trauma where they come in and they think, is, am I still gonna be able to be seen today? Especially those traveling from other states. They worry that the day they get here might be another day that we're shut down. So um, we are, Lilith Clinic is here for the long haul. We are committed to our patients. Um, and I feel really fortunate that we live in a state where our elected leaders are committed to that care as well. Now we have about, oh, maybe a little over 45 seconds each mm -hmm. for a, a bottom line. I just want folks to hear what your bottom line is on this, this Supreme Court ruling that um, really overturned Roe v. Wade for the first time in over 50 years, really, we're, as we said at the top, in uncharted territory. Allison Gash, what do you, how do you want to leave the, the conversation? I would say um, we just can't take anything for granted, even uh, those of us who are lucky enough to live in Oregon or in Washington and states that, that have laws on the books that have really... Um, 
you know, have pro-choice officials. Um, nothing can be taken for granted. We need to make sure that we fight to protect every single solitary right that is at risk um, under this new judicial regime. And are you studying th anything in particular? I, I know you're a specialist in this. Yeah, I mean, certainly there are, are efforts um, already in play uh, in states, um, even in states where we currently have abortion bans to actually have um, rights to abortion encoded in their constitution. Uh, the same goes for same-sex marriage. Uh, so I think folks really need to focus on state and local politics in particular to make sure um, that they're protecting the rights that, that we all get to enjoy and that a lot of other folks no longer um, have access to. And Dr. Paula Amato, your bottom line. I would say the, that the sanctity of the physician-patient relationship is based on the principle of respect for patient autonomy and shared decision-making. Mm -hmm. And there is no room for lawmakers to impose his or her religious or ideological views on others. And you, you told me you really believe in the separation of church and state. I do, not just me, but as, as a country, I think that's uh, you know, a fundamental principle, yes. And Grayson Dempsey, a final thought. I don't think that we would be here today if we hadn't allowed abortion to become as stigmatized as it has in the last 50 years. And I would like to just remind everybody that we all love somebody who's had an abortion. A quarter of American women will have an abortion in her lifetime. And I think that um, the need to tell those stories, to um, be show compassion and, and humanize this issue is um, so urgent right now so that we remember that these laws are affecting real people and denying care to the people in our lives. Well, I want to thank all of you for being here. It's been a pleasure. Grayson Dempsey from the Lilith Clinic, Dr. Paula Amato from OHSU's Fertility Clinic, and also Dr. Allison Gash. Professor, are you a doctor? Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Professor <laughs> Allison Gash from yeah. the University of Oregon. Thank you for joining us here on Straight Talk. Join us next week. We'll talk with the director of Donate Life Northwest and hear about a new documentary about the importance of organ donation, which features two local families. We'll see you next week for Straight Talk. Remember, you can get us as a podcast. Just search for us wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great week.